the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s, a program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of faith. Nearly 60 years later, during these challenging times, we'll take a new look at our divisions, our connections, in a new program called Challenge 2.0. Among the great tragedies of the coronavirus pandemic is the inability to be physically present when friends or family are hospitalized. That's especially true of those who are dying. The Interfaith Amigos, Rabbi Ted Falcon, Pastor Dave Brown, and Imam Jamal Rahman, return in this episode of Challenge 2.0 to examine the wounds created by the grief of not being able to say goodbye. And they also offer some thoughtful strategies to help us heal those wounds. And so we are very grateful as we look at this topic to welcome the members of the Northwest Interfaith Amigos. Thank you, each of you, for joining us again on this episode. It, there are so many different tragedies that are arising out of the uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic, we have to say. And one is the absolute isolation of patients in hospitals, uh, that people have to say goodbye if they even have an opportunity to do that much, uh, and aren't able to be in contact with patients, possibly who are dying and that they can never be in contact again. I'm wondering if you have heard stories or had personal experiences that illustrate that point. Yeah, I think this is one of the terrible sadnesses of this time. When the medical establishment becomes so overloaded, when the contagion process is so virulent, um, it becomes necessary for people who are admitted to hospitals not to have any visitors, um, which means that there are people who are dying alone. And that's not something any of us uh, looks forward to. It's uh, often a kind of fear that many of us have. And from that situation, there are angels and miracle workers who have emerged. You know, there are stories of nurses who fulfill the role of family members and uh, let a person who is seriously ill, who is on the brink of leaving, um, let them know that they're not alone, uh, to hold their hands and to be with them. There are nurses who have had uh, FaceTime on phones so that people who are in the intensive care units can have a connection with their family members and their loved ones who are outside. I think situations are arising now which our system simply has not been prepared to handle. It has allowed a kind of grief to rise that needs to be met. And I think one of the things we need to do as a society is to set in place ways in which communication can transcend the physical uh, separateness that the medical situation requires at this time. 
so that rather than seeing a television screen that has television programs or movies, people can see a television screen that has images of their families and of their loved ones. And so that people who are in those situations can enjoy the kind of communication that we are enjoying right now. But the grief of separation and not being able to communicate is just horrendous, weighing us down and urging some kind of more adequate response. I, I want to raise one issue that even in normal times, uh, the topic, the issue of death is not much talked about. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe a few of us have seen a dead body. In fact, I'm surprised some experts besides health professionals who talk about death and dying themselves have not seen too many dead bodies. In our part of the world, it's very common to see uh, dead bodies. You know, people carry them uh, on the streets. So it's a subject that is muted or avoided. And of course, uh, we have to really, as Brother Ted was saying, from our hearts, uh, you know, sincerely and completely thank all those health professionals. But I know from my own experience in dealing with those who die, uh, that, you know, just as it takes a village, just as it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a village to have a loved one die a good death. It's really uh, from every aspect physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, it requires a circle of loved ones for that person to have a good death. And that is missing. And that is really very, very sad. Uh, but I've heard of health professionals who are performing the function of the loved ones. And for that, I'm very, very grateful. How sad it would be to have someone die alone, to die alone. There really is no remedying that. And there really is no fixing that. And I think sometimes what is best just, I mean, we need to recognize that we can't make it better and not try to paint a happy face on it, not try to rationalize the sadness away, but to be present to that grief and to be present to that sadness in the season that it's with. What about the short-term wounds of the family members, the friends that would like to be present? but can't be, at least not in the way that uh, uh, they would like to be. Uh, what would be the nature of those wounds? What can be done about that? I think some of the things uh, that Imam Jamal was talking about in terms of gathering a community in our imagination, you know, to accompany us uh, in our moments of aloneness is uh, also important um, at times uh, that you're speaking of now. That a kind of connection is affirmed, uh, that um, we hold uh, vigils of prayer, we hold vigils of meditation, we hold vigils of light for those uh, with whom we cannot physically accompany, but who's, who are just parts of our lives and uh, pieces of our hearts, just uh, creating context in which those who are having those experiences can share what they're experiencing and can be supported and not try to be talked out of it, not try to tell, be told everything's okay or everything's going to be okay, but 
to acknowledge the wrenching of uh, separation at such times and to be helped in uh, supporting energies of healing and energies of wholeness. There's a line from the prophet Isaiah, don't be afraid for I am with you. I, I believe that meditation is one of the practices which prepares us for dying. Um, and I think one of the realities of a situation like today is it points out where we have not uh, put enough attention into preparation for such moments. Just as Imam Jamal mentions, we don't much like to talk about death and dying. Well, nobody dies by talking about it. And we need to talk about ways in which we prepare ourselves and help prepare each other for those moments of transition. In my ministry, I've found at times of death, I've tried to encourage people to be present to what they are feeling and to try to remove from their consciousness the oughts and the shoulds. I've had people who are deep who have somebody they loved for years come to me a week after they their loved one died and said, I don't feel the grief I think I'm supposed to. Is something wrong with me? And I always will try to tease out conversations, say, feel what you feel. I've had other people who felt something was wrong with them because they were so overwhelmed by grief and couldn't get to planning a memorial service. Be present to what you feel. People struggle so much with all these expectations of what am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to do? And I think part of a spiritual guide or companion is to help people forget the shoulds and the oughts and to help them to be present to where they are and then to move with them through that. We have focused and rightfully so on uh, the people that are hospitalized, uh, perhaps passing the family members, the friends that would like to be there that can't be. Uh, but you also brought up uh, the people that are really key, the sort of substitute family of the medical health professionals, the doctors, the nurses, various other first responders. What is your feeling in terms of the impact of this experience on the resilience uh, on those professionals? And do you have any recommendations for them uh, to help get through this and to heal through this whole experience? Well, this is, of course, a very big burden on the health professionals. I've talked about a couple of health professionals about the same thing you're talking about, resilience. And I usually say about, uh, you know, uh, uh, two or three things. One is, please uh, practice daily or as often as you can, just silence. Call it meditation, call it whatever you will. Uh, you know, the Islamic mystics say, uh, we're like fish out of water, thrashing and quivering on the banks. Uh, from time to time, we need to, to, to enter into those uh, ocean of life-giving waters. So practicing silence so we can become centered and more resilient. Other one is, um, which is being done more and more, when a patient dies, to really form a circle and go through a ritual depending on your belief system of simply paying respect to that dead body that ritual 
by the health professionals has been very, very uh, powerful and very, very uh, healing. And the last thing is to communicate with the loved ones of the one who has died and just explain to them and offer them consolation. Uh, those have been very helpful. I would add to be sure to ask people what they need from us. For me not to assume until I hear from someone, the nurses in our neighborhood, what, what can I do for you? Can I, can I pray for you? Can I provide you food? Okay. To let them, you know, to ask what they need to support them so they don't feel like they're taking care of me in some way, but I'm providing what they are asking for or what they need for their journey. I've been able to work with some chaplains um, at various hospitals. And one of the things they have noted is that sometimes the people who are most in need of their services are not the patients, but the other healthcare providers. And I don't think this has been recognized as profoundly as it is now being recognized. I think we are on the verge of entering a more realistic environment in which we don't expect our physicians and our nurses to be able to hide and uh, their own feelings and their own concerns and their own worries, and particularly in a contagious setting, you know, in a setting of great contagion, um, and to allow them spaces in which they can share their fears and share their discomforts and share the anxieties and allow them to be normalized, allow them to, yes, even though you're treating these people, you, you, you are human too. And to hide those feelings, to suppress those feelings in the service of your work actually does you harm. Uh, there are those that have already been through this experience as health professionals, as uh, perhaps somebody that's recovered, or as somebody who's had to deal with the illness of person important to them. Are there any suggestions that you would offer uh, for those of us who have not yet been immersed in this experience, but who might be over the coming months? Well, as Brother Jamal said, all of us are facing death and we don't talk about it if it's from this experience or if it's down the road. And so I think one of the challenges of what we're experiencing as a culture is a mass awareness of our mortality because we're seeing death and dying all around us in a way we've never experienced. And I would invite people as they ponder their mortality, what, what does that mean to them? Uh, what does the time ahead of them mean to them? Uh, how do they wanna be present to loved ones? How do they want their life remembered when that time comes? All of us face that. And the strength of what's happening in, in our time now, the amount of death that's happening around us invites us all to that consideration of our mortality. You know, I'm currently dealing with some people who are feeling two things. One is uh, deep sadness. And the other one is uh, guilt for someone who has passed on and they've never experienced this before and they have not met that, you know, they've not been able to uh, be in the presence of the loved one who has passed away. Uh, and so uh, what to do in those situations? Uh, for me, the most important thing is uh, whatever the feelings are, sadness, pain, guilt, because of a lack of closure, to honor those feelings. 
to let that person know that all feelings are sacred. And uh, as my brothers were saying, to, get, to create the space for them to feel the safety of being willing to be vulnerable and share those difficult feelings, little by little. You know, there's a wonderful saying in mysticism, as you share your difficult feelings, it's like you're going through a deep, dark forest. Half the time you're going inside the forest, but the other half you're coming out of it. So it, it persists to really continue with little by little uh, expression of those feelings, always with compassion for yourself. In the case of people who have passed on and they have not been there, how do you do the closure? Well, uh, there are wonderful techniques depending on your belief system, where in your meditative state, uh, if your belief system allows it to summon the soul of that person and then be able to express to the soul of that loved one who has passed on all your sadness and anything you wanted to say. Very often, it's a lack of that circumstances where I wanted to say something, I love you, or please forgive me. But to be able to say that to that person in the invisible world and feel a sense of uh, closure and completion, that can be very, very helpful. Yeah, I encourage people to engage that process with uh, journaling, mm -hmm. uh, you know, where conversations are engaged where I am writing what I want to say to someone, and then I'm giving them a voice. Uh, many years ago, I learned that after my father's death, um, when there were many things that I wished I had been able to say to him. We had not lived in the same part of the country for some time. And I found that when I wrote uh, to him in a journal and then gave him a voice that some of what I wrote was kind of predictable. I knew I was pretending to be him, but then there tended to be some statements that wound up being written, which led me to actually experience a connection and made me wonder, you know, there's more to consciousness than is readily apparent to any of us. There's more to connection than is read, readily, rationally available to any of us. And the kind of communication needn't stop because of physical distance or because of distance in time or even because of the distance between what appears to us as life and death. The other dimension that might exist out of this whole experience is that of perhaps a sense of uh, what might be called survivor's guilt. Mm. Uh, somebody was at a same gathering in a same setting and they survived. Perhaps they never at least uh, apparently contracted the virus uh, and somebody else did and they died or even of uh, health professional teams where one person was infected and one doesn't. For those that have those feelings that are going through that experience. Any suggestions, any observations that you'd share with them? Don't pretend to know more than you know. When somebody survives when others don't, there's a tendency for them to want to say, it was God's will that I made it through. And 
um, which therefore would mean it was God's will that that person just died. And I feel some passion about this saying, being humble, we don't know why these things happen. Uh, you don't pretend to know more than you can know about how the mystery moves over the face of the earth. There's survivor's guilt, but there's also the way a survivor can make somebody who, whose loved one was lost feel. Um, when my mother died when I was 15, um, I had Christian friends who kept on telling me it was God's will. Um, and that it was God's will that my friend's mother walked out of the hospital. It was God's will that my mother never did. And I had a struggle for a long time as a young person of faith to try to understand why did God target me for that pain mm -hmm. until I had came to the understanding that my God, my understanding of the sacred doesn't move over the face of the earth or go, doesn't move over people that are exposed to a virus and say, you, you're going to go and you're going to make it out. I think pretend, pretending we know more than we can know is a great problem. You know, I'd like to suggest two things for that person who is the survivor. One is be grateful mm. uh, in your own way. Uh, you know, whatever your belief system is, simply expressing gratitude. Everything is part of a larger, more mysterious story. The second um, piece is that person who is a survivor, uh, do an act of service, a righteous deed, and dedicate that righteous, righteous deed in the name of the person uh, for, whom, for whom you're feeling guilty passed away, but you didn't. Uh, an act of service will really mitigate, diminish that feeling of guilt. I remember um, when I was in college in a small uh, town in uh, southeastern Ohio, tornado came through town and leveled the homes on one side of a street. And there was a, a letter to the editor in the uh, local newspaper uh, following that that uh, proclaimed that the people on that side of the street must have been evil because God destroyed their homes and the people obviously on the other side of the street were good. And it is a unfortunate um, activity of human consciousness to be drawn to that kind of ideation. Exactly. Uh, just as Brother Dave has said, you know, sometimes people have, people survive accidents and they say, thank God. And every time I hear that, I think, you know, what happens if I didn't survive? Was that then I don't thank God? Then uh, God didn't, like, what exactly am I saying? I, I believe that um, we have a responsibility in life. And our responsibility actually is born every day we awaken. It's like uh, there's a, a, a Jewish prayer with which we greet every day. It starts with thank you, you know, thank you for returning my eye. Thank you for returning my consciousness. Thank you for giving me the opportunity, the opportunity to be present and the opportunity to make meaningful this day. As we look over the coming months and years for that matter, if you could speak, and of course, as faith leaders, you do to faith communities, 
but to employers, to social organizations, what would you suggest that they consider or plan to do to help the men, the women, the children that have been going through all of this? I think the one thing that I would suggest is to create contexts in which people can talk to each other. I think there's a responsibility as people come together not to pretend, oh, everything's okay, oh, I'm okay, oh yeah, how are you, fine. And to allow a different kind of process and a different kind of communication. And building on that, I, I think, especially for those that are employers or those that are leaders of community, is not to make assumptions, but to ask what people need. And to listen to the different ways individuals deal with the tragedy. And not to assume that we know what everybody needs, but to listen to those needs. Uh, certainly, we want to definitely create the context, like my brothers have said, to share stories. We always say this universe uh, is made out of stories, not atoms. The other uh, point is, uh, for me, very critical is to share the insight that just be present. There's no need to be wise, uh, no need to, you know, like I do quote Rumi, do this and that, just be present with whatever comes up. The, the biggest lesson I learned from a lady who was passing away was when she told me, Jamal, I thank you for all your wise thoughts and chanting and Rumi, but what is most healing to me is just be present. If you feel awkward, be awkward. Your awkwardness is incredibly healing for me. If you're speechless, be speechless. Your inability to say anything is very healing to me. You want to cry? Just cry. So I would really share this idea of being present. And lastly, what we brothers always say, that there's no such thing as a Jewish silence, Christian silence, Muslim silence, Hindu silence. That's really all practice, authentic, silence. That'll bring us back to equilibrium. I can't think of a better way to close out our conversation. Uh, I thank each of you for your presence in this and establishing community once again with all of you out there. Uh, I thank all of you that are watching or listening to this right now for joining us and hope you'll do so again next week on Challenge 2.0. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this program, please give us five stars and leave a review. If you can also tell one friend about the show, that would be great. You can find us on social media at Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find out more and financially support the show at pathstounderstanding.org. The program is hosted by executive producer Jeff Renner, produced by Tom Butterworth and John Sharifi. Cameras and audio by Rich McAdams, Tom Butterworth, and Dean Cuccia. Ian Olson is the production assistant.